0: Good evening. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, this is Jake. I'm going to do a little bumper up front to sort of intro the show because um, I'm really happy with how this came out. Uh, I'm really proud of this episode that we just did with Brynn Ebroer from Deep Lettuce Generation Loss and Brett O'Shea from Revolutionary Left Radio and Red Menace. Um, It's great, but I just, uh, I kind of went through all my notes and I realized I did something that I do from time to time. Uh, It's just a uh, foible of mine, which is where I uh, I made a whole entire episode about something. It came out really well, and then I realized that at the end of it, when I was thinking about it that I kind of forgot to talk about the very first thing I wanted to talk about, which sort of provides context for this entire um piece, this entire uh, pamphlet by Lenin, "What Is to Be Done," that we're going to talk about, which is the concept of liberalism, right? Um, and the reason I wanted to. to shine a little light on it is because it's something that I remember when I was learning about all this stuff, I found really confusing because that word means something different to us in America right now than it did historically in its roots and they're connected, but they're different. Um, So when we talk about liberalism in terms of, you know, Russia a hundred years ago, or I guess a little more than a hundred years ago, we're not talking about, um, you know, voting for uh you know, Al Gore and being a libtard or whatever the fuck it means in America today. (laughs) Um, It's specifically a technical term that refers to representative democracy and then some of the the civil liberties that arguably come from there. And the reason I was thinking about this specifically is because there was a controversy, controversy even, you might say on the internet a while back, um, about a piece that came out in Jacobin, Asking the question, uh, this thing about liberalism, it was like, uh, you know, are we with it or against it? I don't know what the exact headline is, but I thought it was interesting because people argued about it, and people that are, um, you know, more on the Marxist side of things were like, of course we're not. And then I think a lot of people that are maybe like, you know, a little bit of a softer centery side said, well, how the hell are we not? Um, and the question or the answer to that question I think lies historically in around, um, the era that we are going to be talking about with Lenin's rise and, uh, this thing he wrote in 1901. So historically, just to give you a little backdrop, you know, when all this was happening, there was a czar that, uh, Lenin and his opponents here, the economists, were trying to beat, right? And he was an autocrat and a dick and everyone hated him, right? And, uh, well, not really, but, um, Lenin sure did, and economists, right? And uh, so the thing about what they had, though, at the time is it did have some sort of form of representative government, and it looked a little bit like what we have today, but not quite. So where that comes from is, like, if you look at, like, the end of the French Revolution, that was not a Marxist revolution, right? The French Revolution ended with these people sort of coming up with this idea of, like, oh, okay, we can give, like, you know, these bourgeois leaders... um, a say in the government. So the guy who's the best farmer is now in charge of fucking making decisions about farming and shit. And the, the guy who's the best gamer is in charge of gaming, etc. cetera. Right. It goes on from there. Um, that's not like what we have today where we vote for people. And theoretically you can be a dishwasher living in the Bronx and fucking run for president or whatever. Um, in Russia at the time, you know, they had what was more easily identifiable as this bourgeois representative government that um, a lot of people, namely these people that he's naming as the economists, would argue you can do Marxism through running like your little AOCs through there, right? And um, what a lot of um, Lenin is identifying when he picks apart these arguments towards doing Marxism through liberalism is that liberalism itself is not inherently democratic. It's um, kind of got a way of always curling back around and being a tool for the uh, the rich and the uh, establishment to control us it's inherently dynamically set up that way it will never allow revolution to happen to get us into a phase you know known as communism in which everyone's needs are met more egalitarianly and more Fair, right. And so in Russia, it's a really easy to look at picture in hindsight and go, yeah, no, only fucking super rich bourgeois, you know, people could be in uh, electoral government. But uh, nowadays people go, no, look, we have democracy in America. We have an advanced form of liberal electoral democracy where everyone can run for office and stuff. And I guess what you need to understand, I guess the argument I would make um, on the Marxist side of this is that it's uh No, it's just a more streamlined version of a thing that has the same inherent structural problem, which is that it will never give everyone what they need. Um, And we'll get into how that, um, you know, how that argument plays out and how that affects other things in the show when we get to the middle of what is to be done. But, um, yeah, just so you know, when he's arguing with these people and we refer to them as liberals, this is the argument against... Uh, you know, the the path of liberalism. Um, Alright, that was my little spiel. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show.
1: Lock them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America.
0: Okay, hello everyone, welcome to Pod Damn America, the podcast uh, for the idiots, I forgot what our name is. Uh, hello, I'm Jake Flores, Alex Patak is here. Hey everybody, uh, let, let's do a show. Anders Lee is here. Tom Radley here. Um, and joining us, uh, we have two special guests this week from Beep Beep Lettuce, Bryn Niebuhr. Hello, And from Rev Left Radio, Brett O'Shea, welcome to the show.
2: Hello, happy to be here.
0: Happy to have both of you to help us talk about this uh, specific piece of theory we're going to get into today. It's a theory episode, so depending on which one of our fans you are, you're either really happy or you're really bad at us. Or you're... (laughs) gonna be mad at us afterwards because we're <laughs> talking about a thing that's gonna piss you off but we're uh, all
3: revisionists
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh but we wouldn't be the show we are if we didn't just hammer right into that shit so uh yell at me on twitter i don't care um i wanted to talk this week i think actually alex brought it up eh, about the uh the pamphlet that Lenin wrote called what is to be done came out in 1901 uh came out i said it like it was a fucking album um
1: when did this drop
4: Jake?
1: Yeah,
0: New shakes
4: you had to refresh the podcast feed a few times so eventually 1901 it was it was on there yeah. was supposed to be
0: 1900 but some they had some tech issues yeah yeah it got pushed back it starts yeah. with lennon saying sorry the pamphlet's late uh please don't unsubscribe <laughs> um But obviously, when we talk about theory, right, from a fucking hundred something years ago, uh, the point of it is to glean some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of parallel, right? And uh, things are happening in the world. A lot of people don't understand what's happening in the world right now. Um, And, you know, history, what is the phrase? It doesn't uh, uh, echo, but it rhymes, right? Well, maybe... If, George Lucas. If you don't understand what's happening in the world right now, listen, right? And you might hear history rhyming its ass off like a fucking rapper, all right?
3: Like a, like a Susicle mm. the Musical.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. It's a, the history is the Grinch. Let's just bring it back to the Grinch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, uh, I th- that's the, basically the premise. Uh, I wanted to read this anyway. Somebody brought it up. I thought, hey, this is all perfect. Um, uh, Bryn and Re- uh, Brett, I know, are you know pretty smart when it comes to Lenin, um, So I figured we'd kind of walk through it, and you guys could help us kind of understand it in regards to what was happening back then and how that relates to what's going on today. So please, uh, you know, g- um, Bryn, I guess, uh, why don't you start with what maybe that all kind of makes you think about
3: uh, Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, gosh, it seems, you know, as we enter the twenties, um, we've got a lot of things going on where we had a big sort of movement in the Imperial core towards, uh, you know, social democracy uh, and, and a big push that failed with Bernie Sanders. Um, and now it feels like, as the pandemic has happened and we, you know, have these big movements sort of anti-police brutality and, you know, um, black rights. uh, It just feels like there's it reminds me a lot. I mean, from what I understand, this is nothing compared to the 60s. (laughs) Um, But it does feel like there's something in the air that like people need, want upheaval. people want change, especially in this country. Uh, but all over uh, the the world Uh, you know India had just had one of the largest strikes in uh, history I think like 250 million people Um, and so I think at this point it seems like there's a lot of people doing what Lenin is complaining about which is sort of being opportunistic leading us back to liberalism trying to fix do reformism uh, entailism etc uh, and it seems really relevant to figure out well, what are we supposed to do because I think a lot of people forget to really ask that question uh, and just say well we have to do something so let's use the structures that are here um, so I think it's a great idea to revisit this very important book that i read a long time ago it was nice to reread it again in preparation for this uh this episode uh because it was (laughs) it's like you said it rhymes it's very very relevant to some of the stuff that's going on right now
1: (laughs) right um when i pitched the idea for this i admittedly had not read the book yet but i just thought the title was a really great uh title (laughs) <laughs> what is to be done that's a fire title it's the first question you ask in the morning you wake up you say what is to be done you do it and what is now this very year but the morning of the revolutionary future
0: well it's the first year of a decade you know there's that um mm-hmm. so before we kind of get into that and also I'm going to talk about the title a little bit uh Brett do you have any sort of opening statements on talking about this this piece of theory
2: Sure. Yeah, actually, just to echo a lot of of what uh, Bryn was laying down on the table, we're living in a time where, you know, we have a a huge wave of reaction, but we also have an awakening, especially among younger people, especially among, you know, people who were previously liberals, a leftward shift as the center falls out of out of American politics. We see movements, and I'm sure we'll get more into this, like Black Lives Matter, expressing this spontaneous and completely justified, um, you know, just deep yearning to to stop being killed by police, to, to have an equal participation in this country, to end mass incarceration, uh, a, a huge amount of problems and a huge amount of energy in the face of those problems, but a complete sort of lack of real organizational focus. And This has happened, you know, all throughout history. Lenin was dealing with it in his own time, in his own context. We're dealing with it again. Um, What makes this a little different is a couple variables. One, we have climate change, right? It's putting a sort of limit on how much time we actually have to get our shit together. And two, we're living in the belly of the evil empire, right? We're living in the legacy of of the Cold War, of the deunionization of Reaganite and Thatcherite neoliberalism. And so the left in this country is really trying to find its feet again, right? We, we had some, some previous iterations of left-wing politics, the Wobblies, the CPUSA, the Black Panther Party, and a lot of that was crushed, it was whitewashed away, we weren't taught about it in school, and we're trying to find our feet once again. And so, you know, even though it was written well over a century ago, everything that Lenin is arguing for is just as relevant today as it was back then, although... You know, This book is obviously couched in so much inner Russian squabbling and whatnot. Some of the, the history can be a little confusing, and it really it's not super relevant. It's pulling out the, the theory that Lenin presents us, which, as, as I think we should keep in mind going forward, was actually put into practice later in the Bolshevik Revolution and proven to be efficacious and to be effective and to be superior to these other forms of organizing that Lenin is critiquing, so for so many different reasons, it's important and relevant to us today.
0: Right. The fact that uh, it was actually proven true is what makes this extremely relevant because uh, this is something that's written during a period of a bunch of people kind of arguing with each other. And if someone else had won, their paper may have been something that uh, (laughs) we would be talking about right now. Uh, But this obviously sort of solidifies the concept of, uh, you know, scientific socialism or whatever it's repeatable, right? It's provable. Um,
1: it's a diet that works,
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah, as like as I read this again, it' just especially the first chapter where he's sort of just like dunking on other people and being like, this is you're wrong for these reasons and you're wrong for these reasons. It really felt like reading someone's like medium posts or Twitter thread and just being like, well, this guy is actually really right because he went on to like actually do the revolution, and I think whoever that is, you're still gonna look back at their Twitter posts and be like, yeah, I guess they were right.
0: this really. <laughs> Does feel like a post because first of all, it's technically a pamphlet and then you start reading it and you're like, this is like a book. This is literally like when you're watching someone post on Facebook and you're like, you're writing a novel. Like you just are going (laughs) off about one concept because it's not like a it's one thing that's a hundred pages. But um
1: how many more times do you have to hit the read more button? <laughs> <'cause you laughs> this to be-
0: yeah, if you were friends with Lennon, he would definitely be one of those guys where you're like, oh Jesus, another one. Um- Is
3: this all you talk about, man. But it is. It's look, all he talks about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the horse, the historical context uh, of him writing this. So, uh, bec- because you know, when if you do sit down to read this, like if you're listening to this and you go, "I want to read this," it will be kind of dense and opaque because you'll have there's a lot of vocabulary you'll have to look up, and you go, "Who the fuck are the economists? Who are, who's who's Lakanoff? Who's, who's, who's fucking uh, what's the Zemstvo and all this shit?" Um, and that's not really. Important, like if you want, if I would suggest to anyone that really wants to take a a, to get their head around this, if you don't have that context, a really quick ish way to do that is to probably listen to Mike Duncan's revolution series on the Russian revolution, because he does provide a lot of context and explain who all these specific factions are and stuff. But really, if you just want to get the point of it, it's the details are, you know, the the trees and the forest is the fucking ideology, right? So um, not entirely important. We can decode a little bit, but uh, just to kind of put some context to it. So 1901, uh, I think, and I'm probably getting this blurry because I'm a student, I'm new. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yell at me or whatever. Um, that's why I have experts here, right? But um, it seems to me that what's going on, the reason that there's these different actions of Marxist thinkers as um so Lenin had Lenin's you know obviously um a radical Marxist and is what is defined at this moment and in this paper as a uh, social democrat that doesn't mean the same thing as what it means now in like Europe or whatever like a fucking sock dem you know um, means he's more of a revolutionary marxist um, and he's been like in and out of uh, siberia for uh, you know for being lenin um, and i think the way this sort of plays out is that he gets back and there's been a there's been a like a a tendency of marxism or at least one that's sort of masquerading as marxism that's sort of gaining a lot of steam and a lot of confidence in people known as economism which um. is essentially the it's it's one that um, proposes that there's a you know an electoral path for Marxist reform, and that also um, trade unionism is this big, is is the thing that we should all focus on, and they sort of limit their revolutionary theory to the trade unions and the idea that these like just, uh, union. Uh, what he called secretaries will rise out of it and sort of become the representatives of unions. And then they'll affect things from there on, but they have a lot of interesting ideas that he breaks down. We'll get to a lot of them involve um, sort of, you know, just letting this sort of stuff happen spontaneously and not um, really organizing a party to, you know, form a cohesive revolutionary push against the czar um, right.
3: He basically, I mean, I, I, from what I understand, it seems like, and Brett, tell me if I'm wrong about this, economists is kind of, he's like being a dick um, <laughs> because he he's basically calling people who are like, oh, these people just want 15 bucks an hour. These people just want like better wages. These people just want like reforms. And so he's calling them economists and sort of a, I don't know if it was necessarily something they called themselves, but it was sort of a... a he was basically saying, "You guys are being reformists. You're not actually trying to change people's relationship to the means of production. You're not trying to make a dictatorship of the proletariat. You're just trying to like make people's lives slightly better under capital or you know liberalism, or whatever it kind of was at the time." Uh, so,
2: yeah, and uh, in a lot of ways, as you're saying, he's basically calling them reductionist, right? You're reducing. Yeah. A full critique of all society down to just its economic components you're reducing socialism to the mere sort of you know bargaining over wages and the employee versus boss relationship and he, and he wants to zoom out and say our critique of capitalism goes well beyond just that relationship right it's a critique of the political it's a critique of the cultural the historical and we have to have theoretical coherency guiding this movement, um, And that's another arena of struggle that we have to operate on, which economists or trade unionists or whatever would like to push aside and say, no, we actually don't have to focus that much on theory and theoretical guidance. Just let the masses do their thing and, and we'll jump in and really not lead them, but be absorbed by them. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's uh, yeah. that's what he's, he's really calling them reductionists and opportunists and a bunch of other things. But that's what they are.
0: <laughs> so he notices he this split in thinking, which sort of later on will uh, become Bolshevikism and Menshevikism. Um, and he decides to write was what, what is essentially like a diss track. This entire thing is just a dressing down a fucking yeah. roast of you know, what we can sort of understand as like liberals who are presenting themselves as like, we're, you know, we're also Marxists. This is also Marxism, which was Marxism was being interpreted a lot of different ways at the time. And a lot of people were dragging it further and further to the center. So he sort of lays this down to go, you know, once and for all, let's examine this. Let's figure out what's, you know, what's the difference here between these two things. And let's like sort of, you know, put this to rest, like not do this or make it an ideological Mm -hmm. case for actually the way he thinks that things should be done. Um, And then, you know, something that's very funny about it is that he names it after this novel that he liked. (laughs) So the reason it's called that is uh, (laughs) because there was this novel called what is to be done that his generation of radical Marxists all like read when they were teenagers. Does anyone know like more about this? I've never read the book or anything.
3: I, n- I only found out about that sort of researching this i' never heard that it was named after like a a little thing he liked
0: it's about like a well, bunch of disaffected youth like punk kids or something <laughs> but,
4: yeah it's <laughs> i was reading a little bit about it yeah it's um Churievsky or something like that who uh I th- historians have described as a populist quote-unquote um but the novel i believe it's, it's looked back on in in like the canon of Russian literature as being sort of like corny or like kind of like a young adult novel. But um, it's, I think it's about a woman who leaves a troubled marriage an abusive marriage and uh, forms like a, she becomes part of a utopian community. So it's sort of like the planting the seed a little bit, of the Soviet, which, which comes, you know, into existence later on. So that, and it was a very influential novel, um, despite its literary qualities or whatever. Um, the one comparison I've seen from historians is uncle Tom's cabin in the U S as sort of like a social novel that like activated people to fight um, slavery at the time. Um,
1: but I guess I love I, I, I'm that not sure. because it also means that, the, if the parallel is complete, there will soon be a hit podcast or album <laughs> drop named Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> We're all going to be listening to him and be like, "You have to really hear what Uncle Tom's Cabin to get it." <laughs> maybe, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm
4: I mean, I'm trying to think of like what the modern parallel would be. Like some, I think like Avatar, maybe. You know, like <laughs> yeah. some Titanric. action movie, or but something yeah. that has like a germ of revolutionary zeal to it. That inspired the like, a generation to it, The Matrix. It would maybe. be funny
0: if Bernie Sanders just wrote like a fucking manifesto and it was called, like, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I remember he <yeah>, had
4: that book. <laughs> (laughs) he had a book that came out that was like, where do we go from here? And I was like, that's a total (laughs) lift from what is to be done. Like he definitely did that intentionally. (laughs) (laughs)
2: And, And that, that work of, of literary fiction arose out of these previous decades of Russian agitation, Russian anarchism, Russian terrorism. I mean, Lenin's older brother was put to death by the czar for a sort of conspiratorial anarcho terrorist plot against, against the ruling elite. So that book comes He's In some ways he's attaching his, his, current sort of ideas and, and struggles to this previous several generations of Russian struggle and like this, this slow clarifying of ideas and strategies to, to move forward with. So it's all connected in that way.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Oh, it's very artistic. It's cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Well then let's dive right into what is to be done and sort of talk about his uh, critique of economism. So, <laughs> Uh, The first thing he grapples with is is this concept called freedom of criticism, which is um, it's a tricky phrase because you, I think what it is is the economists are accusing um, the social Democrats of wanting something called freedom of criticism as if, you know, to say like, well, this is unfair. You think you should be infallible. You shouldn't be able to be criticized or whatever, but that's actually a sort of tricky way of reframing the uh situation can anyone kind of shed some light on this i'm kind of a little hazy on it now that i think about it
3: yeah freedom of criticism is is basically the the liberal i mean the way to think of it is basically the liberals saying purity politics
0: Right. like
3: they're saying you can't you can't you can't accept our like you know big binders full of plans to get you know a means tested health care because you want purity politics basically saying like, let us, we're, we, we're free to criticize you. Um, and you're being like, no, that's not what Marxism is. That's not what communism is. And they're like, well, we what if we say it is? <laughs> and so he's being like, that doesn't make any sense. And sort of, it, it, it's funny because I was thinking a lot about how we get sort of in the muck even now about things like purity politics, things like, blackpilled and all these like dumb words that like are just clear, obvious, like obfuscations of like liberals trying to take revolutionary potential away from people and like get, basically moving the goalposts all the time. And this is exactly, he spends like a good fourth of this book just being explaining to people why that's stupid and why that's not revolutionary. It's counter revolutionary. Um, but obviously, to us, we've never heard that phrase, and we don't care. <laughs> um, but I do think it's a good example of like why it's important. Because if a lot of people can be like, "Oh, you're being elitist," "Oh, you're being like a, a puritanical person," just because you have this like ideological purity, and that works—that's worked in like the in 1902, and it works in 1920. You know, um, so he, I think, he's saying like you have to be very clear that. There's no freedom. Freedom is an important word to be talking about. But freedom to be a reactionary or freedom to be on the right of me isn't anything. That doesn't mean anything. Right. right.
0: Freedom to sort of still call yourself uh, what you're or still call what you're doing Marxism while it's uh, not really defined by the defining characteristics of it. Right. Yeah. Um,
2: and yeah, it's really and another way to think about this is in the face of. In Marxist ideological coherency, there's this group of people, right? These rad libs, if you will, whatever you want to call them today, these opportunists. And they're saying, you know, yeah, you Marxists are too dogmatic. And under the guise the Trojan horse of freedom of criticism, they're trying to usher in a bunch of liberal, eclectic ideas that actually dilute Marxism and therefore hinder the ability for this, this working class movement to progress and, and make actual material means. It's all under, like, it's my free speech to stand up in the middle of the meeting and just say whatever dumb shit comes to my mind you know yeah (laughs) and blending is like no 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 let's be principled let's think through we have to have theoretical coherency if we want to make any advancements whatsoever and so you know fuck your freedom of speech let's actually let's do this you know
3: and i think one thing i wanted to point out in uh in context of this book is that like edward bernays hasn't happened yet like fascism hasn't happened yet like the idea of like really getting at these sort of weird like marketing terms and like understanding really deeply why they're reactionary or pulling people to the right or the center or whatever is way out of people's understanding. And that's why it's really important in this book that he's like, these people are dragging you into a marsh. We're going into the muck and like, we're just going to say, Hey, we're letting go of your hand. (laughs) Like (laughs) you're not with us. Um, and, And I think now we should have enough clarity to say look we saw the nazis do it we saw the Bernays do we've had almost a century of pr and propaganda you have to recognize when someone is just using terms to take away uh you know your focus
2: yeah kind of like a few years ago when reactionaries were all about free speech right it was very clearly not free speech. Like, you don't want communists coming on CNN and giving our views. It was, it was a Trojan horse for them to, to get through their reactionary politics, not have yeah. any accountability for the, the crazy dumb shit that they were saying. So it's, it's similar to that, you know, but inside yeah. a left-wing party.
0: Yeah. there's right. like an obviation there. This also kind of reminds me of when, uh, like Bernie ran in the primary and there were just like, they just like packed the field around him to sort of create this idea that like, um you know this implication that uh what andrew gang is doing and what elizabeth warren do- <laughs> is doing are all you know these various um gradients that are like on a scale similar to what he's doing. Progressivism. Yeah. And that would be defended as like, no, it's it's just a criticism of what he's doing, but it's a, you know, fundamentally different.
4: Right. It's a more practical version of what, of getting to the quote unquote, same place as he wants to go. Mm -hmm. Very
3: similar type of uh, strategy. I mean, these, the the strategies don't really change. And once you sort of like read stuff like that, you're like, or this book, you're just like, Oh, it's, they're always going to do the same thing. It becomes easier to spot. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. this this entire thing, I mean, one of the most useful um, applications of this book, I think, as it applies now, is just like a, you could also just rename it, like, how to deal with liberals. <laughs> 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 because they are going to be around forever until you've destroyed capitalism. Liberalism.
4: Didn't Ann Coulter write a book that was like, liberalism is a mental disorder or something <laughs> that like Michael, that? Michael Savage. Wrote Michael that. Savage. And that's another Lenin uh, work as well about, uh, oh, left communism, I think is an infantile disorder. I think, <laughs> yeah,
0: that, I don't think that was a coincidence either. Wow. Um, let's move on a little bit and talk about, uh, another thing that he identifies called tailism. I think there's a lot to sort of pick apart here. Yeah. Um, so the economists sort of keep pushing this idea of, uh, focusing on the trade unionists right and um that being the uh the thing that's going to drive you know the revolution that they supposedly are also really really trying to make happen right they're (laughs) kind of bullshitting you about um and uh they talk a lot about spontaneity i guess we should sort of like lump in these two concepts and because that's going to kind of overlap with a lot of things that um he's criticizing here uh there's this big economist concept that um the the workers and the trade unionists will spontaneously sort of activate themselves. And it's, uh, you know, it's not good. It's not to be done to, uh, to try to agitate them from at the outside, right? What you have to do is follow their lead. Um, and, Lenin's going to argue with this a lot and take a more active approach and sort of point out how, um, you know, that doesn't really work and how it's very condescending. Um, and, you mm-hmm. know, you're not actually, you're also not really like um, condescending to workers when you in the intelligentsia come and like offer a plan to sort of synthesize with them. Um, you know, it's, it's just a, a, everyone's in it together when you do that, but the way the economists are describing it, uh, makes it sound like, you know, you're this like outside agitator, right? Um, and for that reason, the, the the Leninist approach would be, you know, not to lead them, but to to work with them. And the economist approach is this thing where you're like, no, you drag behind and you follow where they go. Um, I don't know. Let's talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, there's There's two things that I would start off by saying, drawing parallels to today's political situation. One is... Um, these folks are are looking at Lenin and and his comrades and basically making the authoritarian argument, right? Like by, by advocating for a vanguard party, you are these authoritarian elites who want to take over organic workers movements and lead them or bend them to your own will. And instead of that, what we want is just to simply, you know, let them do their own thing and then we can maybe assist jump in. And what it, what Lenin says is you actually end up falling behind them. Right. And then the other thing is this condescension claim where they're saying, you know, you, you know, to the, to the Leninists, if you will, the, all of that term's not around yet. You know, you're being con- condescending. And Lenin flips that around. He's like, actually, you are with all this. It's, it's kind of like today how we hear people say, like, workers can't read theory, right? We have these big debates yeah. on Twitter. <laughs> it's fascist. Yeah, it's classes. You're being condescending, and Lenin's flipping that around. Like you're actually not giving working people enough fucking credit. And in fact, a a vanguard party would allow us to to focus on educating people, bringing them up, you know, and and educating them with theory while also being informed by their day to day struggles and and their political imagination. So it's it's stuff that we still see today with with the Occupy movement, for example. Right? You can look at Occupy and see that's a a spontaneous movement, and it was very inherently suspicious because it came out of anarchist circles. was very suspicious of not only leadership, but of any sort of vertical decision-making whatsoever. And what you ended up with is this consensus decision-making where a bunch of strangers in a room are snapping their fingers to give, you know, support or to take it away from any given plan. And what happens is that movement as a whole is unable to make coherent demands, unable to coordinate their activities from coast to coast, and eventually is utterly crushed by the state, co-opted and then crushed by the state outright. And, And Lenin is trying to prevent those things from happening to to their movement at that time this is an
1: important concept philosophically too uh just in that the entire value of marxist analysis is that it gives you a guide um of where your role is in society and if you if you are genuinely pushing for socialist revolution and a transformation of society you're doing it as a worker so to support and try to guide other workers and tell them you know uh, the things you've been learning uh, that should be forwarding their interests is not elitism. It's it's just helping move the party forward.
0: Shout out to as a worker.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Shout out, Sean. yeah. Uh, professional trade unionist. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think I think that's really important. Uh, and and you absolutely are continually seeing this today. And I think it's um, it is a similar. Uh, Strategy to divide the working class from between elites, like people trying to say, like people who went to college or people who have had time or an ability to educate themselves, um, whether through you know bourgeois whatever means or just sitting down and educating themselves. Those people are now in a different class, according to these uh, you know these these people who are trying to argue. Um, but that's not true at all. And I think there's absolute, Lenin says here, that there's absolute value in people who have had the time and the privilege to do that, helping their fellow workers to organize. Um, and that's why I find it really, <laughs> I find it really insane how much we see this today, uh, how much we see like, well, you, you can't educate the workers that's classes (laughs) um that that feels to me like the most kind of cop shit um and i think it's really important to read in this book why that is not true um and and apply it to today because i think the people who have the most ability to show because lenin talks about it's not just saying hey look i'm educated uh, your boss is robbing you, you know, cause they already know that it's not, it's not commandism in that sense, but it's also like what we have to do is tie their problems to the broader spectrum of foreign policy. Uh, the, the institutional oppression of prison labor and, and, you know, uh, capitalism as a whole. And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, a, re- a random McDonald's worker or Amazon worker or Uber worker might not be able to tie together as like all a part of the same system and that's people who have had the opportunity to read things like this and think about it it's uh, it's our you know their jobs to to educate them on that
4: it's right i think that educating. argument has so much um prestige today because the there's kind of a dearth of working class um Party education, political education, you know, whereas Mm -hmm. other points in history, it was much more common for there to be uh, reading groups of of working people discussing, you know, things like Lenin. Uh, And that is still happening today. There are a lot of uh, self-educated people, obviously, some of us are. um, But the conception for a lot of people is, you know, if you learned all this stuff about history and theory, then you're, you know, either. Uh, rich or a, a debt peon to some some university um right. and it, of course there is there are bad ways to sort of uh try to educate people right it, uh, you i guess you could be condescending and in, in the in the form that you um sort of try to propagandize but uh-huh. it's, it's a really necessary thing to do in a, in a political struggle is to have that grounding in marxist theory and and uh in history um and, you know, that's that's the only way to do it. And, yeah, this idea that people are aren't capable of, of learning it is just selling people short. It's, it's just not wanting to confront the necessity of of education.
3: And so I think it's just such a such a sleight of hand trick to right. imply that people who have read books are now elite.
0: Like, <laughs> well, there's like a lot of dumb people that have read books quite a few yeah,
3: they're not right. elite like people like that basically includes everyone because we just read everyone here has read this book and so we're all elites now and it's like <laughs> that it has not it completely removes like a, a an economic uh, structure from the concept of elites like we are not billionaires right <laughs> none of us have elitism we are just people who read a
2: book
0: yeah there are some o- shades often, of gray Good.
2: Often the most vociferous anti-theory people are really just giving voice to an insecurity that they have, right? They're sort of sort projecting their own lack of theoretical knowledge onto others and saying, yeah, they, they, they can't do it. And so I think there's some psychological dynamic there. But the important, <laughs> the important thing for sure is that it's a back and forth, right? There are some people who are going to be more intellectually equipped with theory, and there are going to be some people on the front lines in the workplace fighting. And you don't go to them and tell them anything just like, you know, you don't tail behind them, but it's this dialogue. It's this back and forth. Right through you learn their everyday st- it's almost like a proto version of mass line right it's like you know you, you mm-hmm. learn the daily struggles of of this segment of the working class you help enrich their understanding of the connections between their struggles and other ones and you know it's this back it's this constant dialectical back and forth and i think that's what lenin is ultimately advocating for now. yeah dialectic
0: go ahead go ahead Brian.
3: oh and it's uh, it's also uh so the the um sorry the argument is so individualist right Mm. because they're talking about like oh this one person is going to walk up to a group of workers and then tell them all this and it's like what we're talking about is creating a revolutionary party and there's going to be roles for vast amounts of people who people who've read and are educated and have like a theoretical foundation and then people who are, are on the floor working or, you know, driving or whatever the work is now. Like, it's not like they're all part of the same group.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's the
3: point. Also, separating them is anti-revolutionary.
0: He also yeah. talks a little bit about how this like division of labor uh, actually cohesively probably has a better shot at getting a greater out Come for everyone involved in the party as opposed to something like what he describes as like a primitive organization, which is the idea that, like, you know, when you work at a co op and it's like everyone here is a stripper and also a DJ and you clean the bathroom, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 you have to, you need specialists for at least one of those jobs, you know. Um, <laughs> I, one thing I wanted to say about tailism, is a little bit of a hot take. I'm going to preface it that way, I guess, is that um, I think that you might notice, uh, you might identify this in liberals when they sort of talk on behalf of specifically like identity based marginalized groups. There's a lot of like, you know, how dare you speak for them or whatever. Um, yeah. And that is a coded way of saying, like, how dare you work together with those people, you know? Mm. Um, there's uh, a quote, uh, I can't remember who said it, it's going around today or whatever, it was about. Um, this ra- black radical who wrote a book in the 60s and he said that uh, I uh, when you write a book about killing white people they fucking sell it and we write about a book about uniting with white people to destroy capitalism Marie Baraka yeah there you go yeah um, I also think though that um, when I think some of us on the left talk about um, like anti-wokeness and this idea that like you need to um, you're gonna alienate Working class people, if you you know make a an honest argument or a discussion about things that are identity based, which is real, it's just muddied with all the you know politics of it or whatever, um, you're gonna alienate these people, right? And I think to me, fucking hot take, and people are gonna yell at me. I think it's a little bit of tailism, honestly. This thing where you're like, you know, you can't have a dialogue with uh, working class people about all the isms that make you mad on the internet, but uh, I will leave it at uh-huh. that. And you can tweet <laughs> at me. <laughs> um, another but thing. Yeah,
4: Go ahead. If I, I think there's a, this, I forget who made this um, sort of analogy, but th- so, uh, what's something I like to, the way I like to think about it is there's a difference between being uh, two or three steps ahead of, public opinion which is i think where socialists need to be and like 10 steps you know like we should be able to have discussions about the society we we want to achieve and where we want to go but you also have to meet people where where they're at that doesn't mean you stay where they're at but that goes back to sort of the the dialectic of of organizing and and understanding people's the framework they've been brought into and challenging it over time in in certain ways and uh i just think it comes down to like like strategy you know and, and some people are going to be ahead of others and as in uh their immediate understanding of how fucked the system is and and i think it in is usually just a case-by-case thing
0: i yeah, think that's, that's a
4: lesson. Oh,
1: i'm sorry you go oh, go ahead alex Um, Okay. yeah, uh, I think that's like the lesson of the year. Right. I mean, if you look at all the Black Lives Matter stuff in May and June um, and all the these spontaneous uprisings that, you know, happen uh, when you have so much pressure going down in capitalism there, they have wide support, huge support liberals who are capitalists are 100% behind them. And the reason is uh, that they, uh, from a socialist perspective, are doing a better job articulating some of the issues of the society we live in than um, you know outright socialist groups are on a propaganda level, which is to say yeah. that, that the inequalities you're facing on a day-to-day isn't just that your boss makes more money than you or that your labor is being stolen. It's that it's manifested by murder in the streets. And people understand that. And they connect with that. And that gets them interested in the conversation more than explaining like the declining relationship of labor to capital over time. You know, Um, and so you have to be able to reach people where they are, um, but still be guiding them to get to that second point later sure it's tricky
0: yeah it is tricky because you see all these uh you know sort of professional hack activists come in and guide them in a different direction yeah it sort of undoes the whole thing
1: if there are at least a hundred instagram models who are now like (laughs) careerists from last summer it's crazy
0: (laughs) well let's skip ahead a little bit and talk about that because i did want to kind of draw some parallels between uh you know what's going on and what is to be done and the uh you know, the conversations around uh, police violence, Black Lives Matter, and um, these, you know, protests, I think there's some legitimate um, criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement from like a Marxist Leninist perspective in that, you know, it is spontaneous, it is definitely what is being described here is, you know, spontaneous, but that is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just not the entire part of the equation, right? Um, I think there've been some interesting hot takes about how it's, um, it's not worker oriented. So it's maybe not moving in the direction of this, you know, Vanguard, this party or whatever. But I do think that it's definitely, uh, what Alex was talking about, which is, um, you know, a big sort of, uh, watershed of class consciousness and the missing piece of the equation is to take this movement in my mind and then connect it to class consciousness and go, look, it's not that hard to explain the police protect capital, right? Mm -hmm. Um, everyone who was involved in these, uh, protests could move from there and sort of contextualize. It's not necessarily a lost cause in my mind, but this is, I'm open for discussions. If anybody has anything to say about that, go right ahead.
2: I think what what Mao and, and Lenin remind us is that when something fails to live up to a, a full revolutionary potential, it's not the fault of the masses; it's the fault of the the vanguard elements. Mm. And so, any Marxist Leninist or anybody on that side of things that wants to look at BLM and just critique, critique, critique. Well, the reason that that energy is funneled into spontaneity and not into organization is because the Vanguard elements of American society haven't created an organization to take that really genuine spontaneous energy, sharpen its edges and use it as a spearhead for attack. That's our failure. You know, that's, that's all of our failure. It's not the failure of the people themselves. They're rising up in spontaneous and justified reaction to just continued brutality. And so, yeah, there, there's this tendency to want to stand back and continuously critique when you realize the missing piece of the puzzle is precisely the level of organization that Lenin is advocating here. But it's not the fault of the people who are fed up by, that they're getting killed by fucking cops in the street and do whatever they can. It's, it's the fault of the left more broadly. And so, always shifting that back away from the masses and putting that blame back onto our. All of us collectively, right onto our shoulders, I think is the responsibility of revolutionaries and radicals.
3: And I think that a lot of, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I've been saying, I remember back in the summer, I was talking about, I think somebody, maybe Amber said this, but like the, the, these kinds of things that happen, the BLM protests are pot boiling over. Like when you put heat on water, it's going to boil. But we haven't, what I was saying is that we haven't created a mechanism to funnel the seam and power and engine. Yep. At all. We have no mechanism whatsoever. And like, that's what it takes to actually do something yeah. uh, because it will simply just boil over and people will get caught in the flames and then it'll simmer down. Mm-hmm. um a- a- And I think what Lenin here is saying is absolutely true. And this is what we were saying before is that if you don't have You know, if you if you keep people from saying, oh, you're being elitist for wanting to create that structure, then you're just going to have this this cyclical thing happen where the structure never changes. It's just continually, brutally violent. And I think people one of the things that people forget about this book is that Russia in the night in 1902 was having continual famines. We were on the precipice of World War One. Like, <laughs> there's so many like materialistic, like horrors that were happening. As like the Soviet Union happened, there was like famines because of like, you know, uh, just because they've been happening because they live in the fucking freezing uh, desert of Russia. Uh, and like, they had to create mechanisms to, you know, lift people out of poverty. Like people were, at their lowest point to the point that they were willing to die to create this new thing. Um, And so I think when people look at, you know, 2020 in, in the Imperial core, I think we see a lot of similarly bad things happening. The fire is at a boil and it is, I think, absolutely on us to be creating those machinations, those, that machinery to funnel that energy or else it's, We're all just going to get caught in the
0: flames. Yeah, you might say contradictions are heightened right now, right?
1: Very high. (laughs) Mm,
2: Contradiction time. And and we also see that in lieu of that that level of organization and in lieu of that theoretical guidance, what happens in the the Black Lives Matter movement is that – because of the momentum and inertia of just regular liberal ideology, there's almost an inherent automatic default back to liberalism there. It makes it much easier for for liberal forces to co-opt the energy of Black Lives Matter shifted away from actual material changes and into purely symbolic ones, right? Representation street art um you know the fucking pelosi wearing those african fucking that's God. what liberalism does and and lenin is telling us it will do that every single time but not yeah. only that yeah. the exactly and not only that the 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 blm leaders
3: well first of all some of them aren't even blm leaders obviously d d ray and all of these you know in my opinion cia ops like fucking sure. get into this creation of like this totally separate thing that isn't even connected to the, to the protests or whatever. But then real actual BLM leaders and people who are involved and actually do care. The only thing they know to do is enter the democratic party.
4: Yeah.
3: Uh, Cause it's the only structure the only machine that they understand how to affect any type of change at all for their entire life is the, you know, the blue party, which has sometimes pretended to care about workers and black people, um, and people like Corey really Bush confusing.
1: and AOC. It's really confusing to take the streets, stop traffic, uh, threaten police, march around for five or six hours, and then the march ends, and the last thing anyone says is the leaders going to the front and going, remember to vote Democrat, <laughs> and you all go home. Fucking insane. Yeah, <laughs> Another- Frustrating,
2: I get the anger, I don't know. <laughs> Another perfect example of this is when the NBA was going on strike. The media called it a boycott, right. but they were getting ready yes. to go on strike and guess what happened? They sent in arch neoliberal Obama to talk them off the ledge. We yeah. cannot have black people and working people understand the power of strikes. And so he went in there, made it a symbolic thing and, and stripped it of any material possibility of change. And that's what the liberal uh, formation does every time.
4: Right. And I think, yeah, the, the, if we're just going to like back to the sort of the standing on the sidelines thing, if we're just going to like say like, Oh, this is doomed to be a purely representational movement and we don't get involved, then that's, go- that's gonna That's going to be what's what happens. You know, it's, it's yep. the job of uh, revolutionaries and Marxists to get involved in the movement on the streets and try to push it in, in a uh, material direction. Um, I will say, I think in, in DC and in another, a lot of cities There has been a push and we'll see how this goes down um, to actually take on the budget in in these places and actually defund the police and redistribute the money there. And that's Mm. sort of uh, a good step. But the question is, does it end with that? Is that just become an end in and of itself uh, or are we actually grounding the redistribution in Marxist theory and in the history of Lenin? Uh, and actually building towards something greater.
0: Well, that, um that dovetails pretty nicely with another critique of economism in what is to be done which is he basically looks at economism as maybe a um, you know a line of a uh, tendency of marxism that uh, either on purpose or on accident fell into this pitfall known as tactics as plan, right? And you sort of see this with like new socialists, I think a lot where like, you know, you're not all the way out of the Plato's cave. And I mean, when you (laughs) understand like the tactics, it's really exciting, but um, you might really think that the end all be all of socialism is going on strike or something like that, because they really, you know, focus a lot on the trade unionism thing in, uh, in, I guess what the economists were writing about. And, um, that also is sort of like a pitfall when we talk about going the electoral route. Um, a lot of liberals will make an argument that like, that's, that's how you do it. Right. And it's like, no, this should be in service of this greater Vanguard party movement. The only thing that can really, uh, possibly, you know, get the job done here. Um, I guess tactics as planned is interesting to me because, um, it's, uh, it's it's like something you can kind of get lost in it's it's like um it's an argument that i the way he sort of describes it, I guess is that what like when you you reduce everything to just trade unionism and strikes and stuff like that um, everything is still framed in the framework of you sort of being locked in conflict with your boss, right? So right. when you win a $5 pay raise or something or fucking five cent pay raise or whatever, um, that's good, but you didn't break out of that dynamic and that right. should be the end goal or else this, you're just, they're just kicking the can down the road, right?
2: You're playing on a field set up by your enemies.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. Um-
3: yeah, and and this is interesting. I was just listening to an interview with Boots Riley, who was sort of giving like a breakdown of how what what strikes and picketing and and this kind of tactic used to be about was uh, removing um, the production, right? Like you had to stop working, and that was a demonstration of the power you had as a group of people. And that's why they're called demonstrations. Like there was actually power in that and it would cause actual problems (laughs) but as like the stratification of the working class happened as the 70s happened and like all of the radical leaders were murdered by the fbi like the concept of picketing just became like let's show that we're angry and it would happen like on a weekend and nowadays like when you go protest nobody's like taking off work to protest yet generally like One of the big reasons the protests happened this summer is that everyone was, like, during a pandemic. You know what I mean? And, like, no everyone's off work. We've got a high level of unemployment in America. And so that's – but, like, it's not actually hurting anybody's bottom line for you to go out in the street generally. Dude, once those cops start dancing with
0: you, they've reframed the entire fucking – thing. Yes, you know?
3: but but that's exactly my point, is that if there's if you're just out in the street how are you hurting anybody? Like, how are you hurting the, the, the money flow? How are you fucking with their money? And if you're not doing that, you're just play pretending, kind of. You know what I mean? And it's like, I understand that people are angry and want to do something and that's good, but if you're not doing anything, it's just, it's just tactics as the
2: plan you know yeah and we should also understand powerless there's been a long century-long reaction specifically against even just trade unionism because they realized it was a leverage point for people to actually as you say demonstrate their power with mccarthyism and stuff we saw the stripping away of radical leadership from unions and then with the rise of neoliberalism reagan and thatcher we saw the decimation of unions as and so that it really this long strategic assembling of one of the main levers of power for any oppressed people to fight back. And that's no accident. We find ourselves in the middle of the street with nothing to to stop, you know, no real power to to exert. That's how exactly how they wanted it.
0: Yeah, that exactly. tactic was actually even too much. So they just took it away. And now we're still sort mm-hmm. of talking a tactics as planned thing with like, oh, you run another AOC or whatever. You know, that's fine as a tactic. Right. But it's not the plan. Um, yeah,
3: and and good. and that that kind of stuff saps energy too. Like people, yeah. you know, lots of people we know, and, and some of us, you know, like spend a lot of time canvassing for Democrats. And like, I mean, throughout my whole life, you know, in two thousand eight, I was like, well, I guess the best thing to do is vote for Obama and get people to vote for Obama. And like that kind of, no matter how socked them or whatever the candidate is, it's a lot of time supporting a party that hates you. <laughs>
4: um, yeah. I yeah, I mean, I would push back on that a little bit. Maybe we'll get to this later on. But I think like the people I think a lot of times the broader left is very quick to dismiss DSA because of the the party question. Um, but there is, I think, a lot of interesting dynamics that are happening there that are sort of brushed over because of that. I mean, it's I, people will sometimes tiptoe around this. Uh, about electoralism, but that, I think we should be honest, that is a big part of the strategy. And and most of the candidates endorsed by DSA are using uh, the Democratic line. But that's in service of building a, a party that um, is, I guess, not legally a party, but it has its independent uh, financing and, and organization from from the Democratic Party. Uh, I think like in the context of of today, um, a really good way. And, and, you know, the, so many of our, uh, so much of our ability to really form revolutionary organization and party has been, has been uh, crushed by the ruling class. But I think a, a way to sort of uh, establish um, confidence within, with the working class and with, with uh, the socialist movement is to uh, make material gains through parliamentarianism. I, I know people disagree, but, um, I, I don't think,
3: disagree with that necessarily. Okay. I, 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 I'm I generally, uh, the DSA, I wonder, because I, I wanted to get into this, especially with you, Brett, um, because to me, the concept of the party form is something that Lenin really cares about. But to me, like the word party isn't as important as what a party does, which is not yeah. simply run in bourgeois elections, but I think right. is absolutely going to be necessary in an imperial setting like this um but also does does all of the mutual aid stuff does the organizing of workers and does all of this kinds of stuff and i don't know the dsa might be doing some of that in some places um but if the whether they call themselves um what is it called? The, it's, is it an organization? I don't
4: know
1: what they even call 501C, 501C3, yeah. it's the C 501 C three. Yeah. Yeah. World's first strand type game. <laughs> <laughs> well,
4: that, that's think, what I was going to say, though, because the I, I think that what different differentiates DSA from like Justice Democrats or something like that is that to them really reforming the Democratic Party, getting more progressive Democrats isn't an, an, in and of itself. Uh, but that political education is happening alongside the reforms that were, were winning in, in New York, uh, New York state, we now have, have tougher rent control laws. It's not, you know, socialism, but it's, it's a, something to establish, um, a footing, uh, for further, further change and, and revolution. And there's also a lot of other stuff that's happening. That's not electoral. I think the, the rank and file strategy, uh, is really important too. It's, it's a, an effort to get members to join, uh, I key industries, it's a certain amount of um, uh, uh, industries that we had a really vigorous debate about which industries to to focus on that uh, would put uh, people in a strategic position uh, to actually shut a city down, you know, that this Mm -hmm. stuff is is happening slowly. But it uh, it is grounded, I think, in more Marxist revolutionary thought than I think a lot of people uh, give it credit for. But I
3: think that's at least at least partially about you know, communication. Right. Um, it's difficult to say what they're doing, and I think what Lenin is saying here is that like it can't be the, that can't be the end, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with getting more wages, better wages, better hours, no child slavery or whatever. <laughs> you know, like there's nothing wrong with fighting for those things, but the plan has to be understood among the party leadership that what we are fighting for is. Uh, the end of capitalism is a revolution to put the workers in charge of the society
2: and if yeah. you lo- and if oh, go ahead no no you got it and if you lose and if you lose sight of that that becomes the problem it's, it goes back to this tactics as plan thing um and then also the the idea another critique could be you know given that you're an organization where actually do you put your time energy and funding toward and if it is towards if it's way too much towards um electoralism in lieu of, of other um ways to to spend that energy time and money then that can become a problem and if electoralism becomes an end in and of itself that can become the problem as well but i've always Advocated the fact that anything that makes life less miserable for working people should be supported. I was advocating for you know Bernie to go out and vote for Bernie Sanders. Healthcare, all that stuff's important. But even I think just the just the the knowledge generated by the fight. Right, if Bernie actually yeah. got in. I think Democrats would would you know expose themselves for what they are. Republicans would expose them. the system itself, the facade of democracy would start to slip, and that can be educational in and of itself. But when that becomes the end in and of itself, even if it's not conscious, it just sort of slowly and surely defaults to that. I think that is where a critique can be laid. But I see the DSA as I see all these formations – we're all imperfect right but it's everybody fighting the best way they know how on multiple fronts and what else should we expect there's almost like some radicals some ml's and stuff are, are just like offended that the dsa even fucking exists and it's like well what what do you expect there's going to be an entire spectrum of left-wing activity we can advocate for our own but it doesn't mean we need to like cut off and make enemies out of what mao would call non-antagonistic Contradiction.
0: Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and bang my gavel right now because I uh, I think the tactics (laughs) that's planned is a circular thing that really we could get stuck in because uh, it's really to kind of put a point to it. uh, You know, Lenin is not saying the tactics are bad. He's saying that reducing everything to just that. And that is the end all be all of the plan is bad. And that applies to all this stuff. You know, we kind of feel that way about every tactic, electoral stuff, um, you know, uh, unions organizing, all that stuff. And also another tactic he talks about, Terrorism. So this is a really interesting know. thing. Um, now we
3: make all the anarchists mad. <laughs>
0: it's it's a uh, so it's timely. ISIS listeners, apologies yeah. in advance. Yeah. Oh yeah. but Also Shout a bunch of the brave soldiers and Mujahideen. <laughs> a bunch of alerts just went off, and the fucking Homeland Security guy. Oh, yeah. Computer that listens to this. Uh. Shit. <laughs> um, so terrorism is interesting. Uh, it's timely for when he writes what is to be done because he's coming off the heels of the era when you would throw big bowling ball bombs at czars and dukes and stuff, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it wouldn't. Uh, you know, it would kill them, but it wouldn't uh, maybe bring on the revolution. And so he's sort of underst- He's talking about the the limit to that and how it's uh, it's a spontaneous act, right? It's something that someone just gets fucking fed up enough and they go, oh, I'm gonna just do it, right? And then they go and do it, and it has this backlash that um, kind of keeps the organizing from from occurring. Uh, that's the critique here: is it actually works against the ultimate party plan, right? Um, and it's also, I mean, it's timely for uh, you know our time because uh, they burned a fucking police station down, right? And so <laughs> a lot of people might look at Black Lives Matter and the the protests and the riots and stuff like that as like having the same. Uh, shortcoming, the, you know, oh, the, the, the big thing that you hear a lot, honestly, or at least I've heard a lot is like, that is going to turn people off. And so it can't happen this way. And then the person will either go, you know, down the liberal road and say, so you have to vote or they'll go down a different, like left road and say, you only can organize. Um, you can't really do what is, you know, happening that is being perceived at least as terrorism there. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit about the tactics of terrorism. And also, I guess my counterpoint to it would be, we just did an episode about john brown. And, uh, you know, he might be the only example of it sort of, you know, not necessarily one to one directly causing something to happen, but catalyzing and heightening contradictions that were already in place in regards to a big situation where the mode of production could not sustain itself. Um, anybody have any thoughts on terrorism? <laughs>
3: well, well, I'd say, well, if, uh, just to be pedantic here, I mean, like, uh, I, I don't really think that we should be considering uh, John Brown as a terrorist considering the attack of military base. <laughs> um,
1: fair. Uh, but uh, and that's uh, the same point you could make for the black lives matter stuff too. Sure. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Um, but I, I don't even know if I think Lenin is coming at this from a respectability sort of argument, Uh, I think more than anything, uh, this is um, reminds me a lot of maybe last year. I think it was last year. There was a guy who shot up an ice facility. Um, I don't remember remember. that, but he like sort of knew he was going to be his last act and wrote an. Uh, su- basically a suicide note and then shoot up shot up an ice facility. And I, I feel he like just
4: really wanted to wear a sombrero. He read, Jake yeah, jokes. he's
0: heard this joke on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: He was like, if I make it through this, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to call myself Speedy Gonzalez. Uh,
0: <laughs>
3: but uh, no, I think that um, I, I don't, it, at the time my feeling was uh, in a sort of like, in the spirit of leninism is that sure man that's cool i'm glad you know i feel your pain and and, but it's not that i think it's bad for the movement because no one is going to be like well i guess ice is good now that somebody shot up ice uh but that it doesn't really do anything Mm -hmm. um it it isn't functionally um it's not a strong move right exactly Um, against the ice as a structure what she what he should be doing is trying to i mean not to you know r.i.p and everything but like you know it would have been more uh, the play would have been better the offense the offensive play would have been more likely to have succeeded if he was able to get a lot of people involved and like actually perform a siege or like create a a plan. Um, And I think what Lenin is saying is that if you have a party that says, okay, we don't want ice to exist. What we're going to do is have a series of attacks on these levels. And we've all decided that this is the best play. Then you can, you know, have a plan of attack that might actually function to to strike a blow against them rather than this sort of show of violence that, that results in, basically an inconvenience for
2: them yeah it's it's the The ineffectiveness that lenin is critiquing Mm -hmm. the thing about
1: terrorism right now um is purely a question of advocacy because it's not that it's not happening there has been no one more active in the uh in terms of uh, american domestic terrorism today than the right how many like mass shooters have popped up because they read like a 4chan blog and what did they accomplish? Exactly. There's a huge pushback on it. You're not really um, you're not really attacking the structures you need to attack. You're just kind of getting anger out. But the same thing, too, is that it's very appealing to the capitalist brain because it, yeah. you don't have to do any organizing. You just need yeah. a lot of hustle. It's very cathartic. And so like, you know? If you read about stuff that pisses you off, it's the first thing you want to do. You're like, I'll go there and I'll blow them up. <laughs> you won't
2: get anything done. So, yeah. I don't know. You have to go send some emails. <laughs> it's it's an it's an act of, of cathartic sort of desperation in lieu of any other levers to pull. And um, my my co host on Red Menace, Allison, pointed out the uh, Earth Liberation Front and the Animal right. Liberation Front from the '90s. You know they yeah. did these basically. Well, I mean, you could you could dispute whether it's terrorist or not. I don't, I mean, I think the American government is a terrorist organization, but leaving that question aside, what ultimately happened was, I mean, big agriculture didn't slow down. Animals weren't stopped being slaughtered. uh, Climate change didn't cease, but those people that took part in it threw their lives away. They're still in prison, right? So what efficacy did it have? Lenin's older brother, right. Did this exact thing. He engaged in terrorist, lost uh, in terrorism against, I mean, out of desperation and well intention against a you know, objectively brutal regime and paid for it with his life without advancing the ball for his class and for, for oppressed people. But there is an element of, of propaganda of the deed. And I think that would be a a defense that somebody on the, maybe like the, the more insurrectionary anarchist side might say, and you can look at somebody like, uh, like Chris Dorner, right. Um, oh, yeah, he, he went off. And and on one level, <laughs> he, he certainly went off. <laughs> yeah. I'm, now, it didn't change anything. Right. I mean, the, the LAPD is still oh, it was just fucking cool. garbage. But it did it. But the question becomes, was it in, was it inspiring? Did it did it put seeds of new ideas in other people's heads? Did it uh, uh, enlarge your critique of policing in America? Those questions are sort of on the table. I'm sure for some people it did. I think all of us look at him. With a little bit of admiration, right? Whether sure, or not, yeah. we're really committed or not. I would argue he
0: birthed uh, and some Michael very Xavier cool. Xavier Johnson. <laughs> yeah. say again?
2: And Micah Xavier
3: Johnson.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, In Chris Dorner yeah. birthed a lot of really cool memes. That's something <laughs> cool that came out of that.
3: And that's, that's sort of my argument against that is that it's a little bit fuzzy and idealist, and it's like, okay, yes, propaganda exists, but does it really sh- shatter through And especially nowadays where every other day is a new, you know, discourse on Twitter and the news co- may or may not cover anything. I don't know if even literal murder is going to shoot through, uh, like Michael Ronel happened. There was this whole argument of like this, you know, Patriot prayer killing. And then they, the cops just straight up murdered him. And was he an asset or not or whatever? like, who cares? It doesn't actually matter. It doesn't change anything. There's no propaganda. Nothing happened. It didn't change anybody's mind. So it's like, does it, does it break through our consciousness? Not anymore. Maybe in Lenin's time, there was like some argument that like, you know, planting a bomb at the white house would have like caused everyone up to panic. But now it's sort of just like, well, whatever, I don't know. It doesn't affect me personally. And I don't think you're going to get people to like pay attention or like change their mind or, really yeah. much of anything at
0: this point. Another thing about terrorism is that you can only do it once, you know? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. This, right. this is where I become kind of a little bit of uh sympathetic to a fucking, uh, you know, a Woody Guthrie, this guitar kills fascist sort of thing. It's like, you probably get the same amount playing a song. Why don't you just do that a hundred times, you know?
4: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I do think he's right in, in general, but there are like some exceptions where it, it, I've I've like felt the consciousness change. I mean, this particular sure. thing I've been involved in has wasn't uh, I think anything that would be described as terrorism. But I when Eric Garner, uh, when his his killer was um, got off. There's all this movement in the streets in New York City, and all these people who showed up to protest, and you could just feel people discovering um, in real time the power that we choose to give the police and actually Mm -hmm. taking a street, taking a bridge, you know, the law is not a uh, a, a force of, um, of, of gravity. It's, it's something that's invented and just discovering that among people is very powerful. And I think that is kind of what happened in, in Minneapolis when they, they burned down the the police precinct question is, is that sort of just going to remain among the, The uh, cadre of people who comes out to protest or is it going to um, have a ripple effect among among the masses of the country? I think that's sort of an open question.
1: I Off think, uh, Jake's point real quick, I, I will say that if you are a committed socialist in America, the most helpful thing you can do is stay alive yeah. <laughs> for not very many of us. Yeah. Don't die.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I just wanted to add one more thing to this discussion, too, because the irony is that sometimes such actions that could be labeled, quote unquote, terrorism actually do have something like a better impact and more efficacy, but it's actually only when they're tied to above-ground organizations. And Mm -hmm. we can think of like the IRA car bombings, right? Or the the, um, uh, Black Panther Party as the above-ground organization and the Black Liberation Army as the underground version of it. So when you actually have this above-ground-underground dynamic and it's connected to this broader party organizing, some of those criminal, quote-unquote, activities can't actually be more effective precisely because they can then feed back in to the above ground rhetoric propagandizing and agitation but with in lieu of that totally separated from that it's just utterly you know inefficacious
0: oh yeah I you gotta have like, like a like a stalin like a, you know your underground mob boss guy running Robin around <laughs> cracking yeah. skulls and commandeering steamboats from mickey the mouse and shit yeah.
3: <laughs> And that's and I th- that's what we were talking about earlier with the DSA is that I think that if they were running electoral like I think electoralism is totally fine I don't think the Democratic Party itself has any sort of like revolutionary potential I think there should be uh, a socialist uh, electoral you know entering that sort of parliamentaryism um, if they're going to do it um, but if it's connected to those things then supporting each other then you can have that thing but if you only do one or the other it kind of becomes Every time, you can always come back to, like, if you separate people and you make people unable to communicate with each other, it's always going to be weaker. And I think that's kind of the point, Lenin's whole point. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I will. I have one note about something uh, Brett said. The ALF freed the giant pig in the movie Okja, if anyone's seen that. <laughs> that I did you? see yeah. that. That was great. It's a great movie. Uh, <laughs> it's Bong Joon-ho. computer
4: pig. animated? That was a real animal. <laughs> that was a real pig. A tiny pig,
0: but they <laughs> put the camera close.
2: Wow.
0: Um, okay, so let's move on a little bit to <laughs> the main concept that Lennon is working towards this whole time, um, which is the... The Vanguard, which he doesn't really have a word for it yet, I think, when he writes this. But um, he's talking about building a party, um, you know, as opposed to just sort of assuming all this stuff will happen spontaneously. And that party sort of uh, the first step in making it, he sort of identifies as um, this thing that he calls professional revolutionaries. Right. Um, so the idea is. I guess would be that from the intelligentsia, you have people whose job is to sort of go down and, um, organize with the workers. And then you also have workers that rise up. Like we were talking about, you know, earlier, um, and are able to sort of get their fucking theory on and read and sort of get a bigger picture for all this stuff and become, um, you know, these specialized science for the, you know, the workers that they came out of. And that all together forms this team, you know, this, this specific, um, sort of unit of people that organize everything else out as a nexus. And that might sound kind of odd and kind of like you're putting a lot of work on or a lot of pressure on a a small group of people. But it's, first of all, I mean, this is proven to sort of work in in the the 1917 revolution. And also Mm -hmm. he sort of, uh, you know, looks at it and breaks down how you might say this is undemocratic, right? Maybe it is, but (laughs) let's think about democracy. Um, uh, you know, is, is liberalism incredibly democratic is bourgeois liberalism. You know, when, when somebody runs for mayor, is that fair? Is it, or, you know, is how is that a lot different than, uh, you know, when Che rises up out of the fucking muck and becomes Che or something like that. Um, he also contrasts it with like the idea I was talking about earlier, the co-op thing of a primitive organization, people saying, no, 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 everyone should have the same fucking rights and everyone should have the same say or whatever. Well, that doesn't function very well and it doesn't really do, um, anyone any good to uh you know to to put that much pressure on every single person we talked about the division of labor earlier um you know in terms Mm -hmm. of there being a vanguard and Um, and then the i guess we'll maybe get to the newspaper next um i don't know the parties anyone have anything to say about
2: yeah i can start on this um one example of this and i I think it's really good I, i enjoyed this um was john steinbeck's novel in dubious battle and what oh, yeah. he does is is he, he through fiction, right? He talks about how the communist party operated and it's regular working class stiffs, right? They get, they get recruited by the party. They come in, they can quit their job. They become funded by the party, right? They go out on these missions, depending on where you're at. And another thing that they would be able to do was send um, organizers from the party into labor struggle. So when a labor struggle arose anywhere in the country, the, uh, the professional revolution, revolutionaries from the Communist Party could be funded, could be sent down there in a caravan, not to go down and take over and dictate, right, but to talk with, to engage, to make these connections with other struggles around the, around the country. And I think that's a really important thing to think. And through that novel, you get a clear idea of actually how that works on the individual level. But then also we can look back in American history at the early Communist Party USA before, you know, their turn towards revisionism. Um, I had an episode on Rev Left where we talked about the folk singers and the bureau. And in that book, he explains how the communist party saw the rise of these folk singers. Many of them, you know, either black and oppressed for that, or come out of working class backgrounds and oppressed for that reason. And through their connections with the party, they began to use their music to advocate for, you know, left-wing politics, pro working class people, anti-racism, anti-fascism, etc. The black Panther party is another iteration of using mm-hmm. this party Um, sort of apparatus to effectively affect change. And when we look back over American history and we we ask ourselves, what actually were the most effective left-wing movements? They're almost always going to think of things like the early Communist Party or the Black Panther Party right off the top of their head. And why is that? Well, precisely because they took this Leninist model of organizing incredibly seriously. And then when you get into professional revolutionaries, I always like to make this point whenever I talk about this, is you can think of somebody like Fred Hampton right fred hampton yeah. did not become a leader because he was a, a careerist because he played all the right moves and got to the top of an organization for his own personal ambitions he he rose precisely because he had organic confidence from the masses from his community which supported him. He rose organically and his leadership was based on the trust and the confidence and the loyalty that the masses in his community had toward him. And that's precisely what Lenin you know really goes to lengths to to make clear is this is not some tyrannical careerist move where leaders arise in this in this way, but it's 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 wholly organic. And if you do not have good connections with the people you represent with your other comrades, if you don't put in the work, you don't aspire or you don't inspire that sort of loyalty and confidence in you and so it really beats back this whole idea that leninist organizing is a bunch of authoritarian wannabe tyrants trying to take over no 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 in every instance where it's applied properly we see organic risings like rosa Luxemburg's, like che guevara's like fred hampton's come to the top and that's the strength of it exactly
0: yeah. i don't know
1: what else to say <laughs> um <laughs> I, I wish we had a, a vanguard party it would be very nice right it's, it's interesting my thought upon reading it <laughs> it's
3: so important it's, it's like i mean like when you he- listen to what it is like when you listen to like again the black panther party everybody likes the black panther party i don't like very few people are out here being like the Black Panther Party was authoritarian or they're like, you know, elitist or whatever, because they clearly weren't. But this is what the Vanguard is. It's, you know, an organization of people that help their community and organize their community. And organize doesn't mean dictation. It doesn't mean you have to do this and we're controlling you. It means, hey, these are the problems. Here's how we're going to fix it. We're, this is, we all have these ideas and like, our job is to help you fix these, these problems in our community. Um, and I, it, it's, it's just so striking to me how easily people overlay inequality on people trying to fix problems. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's bizarre.
0: <laughs> well, something that I find kind of interesting about this is that, um, the professional revolutionary or the vanguard, right? It kind of capitalists, in the West in the cold war and stuff like that often accuse communism of being this thing that turns people into homogenous automatons, worker ants or something like that. (laughs) But this is literally arguing like against that. It's saying, no, it doesn't make Mm -hmm. any sense. We're not going to indoctrinate every single person with the entire fucking thing. We're going to raise class consciousness, which is like a certain level of that. But actually, you know, you only really like you, you have specialization the same way we have in the professional thing in capitalism. Professional is like a really odd term to put on this. It kind of sounds like he's saying like we need PMC Stalin or something <laughs> like that. But uh because just just because of our Twitter brains and shit like that. Um and it is, you know, specialist is maybe a better word for it. But I mean that that is something that, you know, regardless of probably um government uh, you know, tendency, fucking Whatever system you want to go with, it's probably innate to like human nature. We as communities notice, oh, one of our guys is really good at math. We should fucking, you know, have him help us with this other thing. And one of somebody mm-hmm. else is really good at, you know, whatever. Yeah. Alex yeah. Knows people, a lot of
3: people organize almost naturally. Like they're like, oh, that guy's really good at fixing the road or that guy's really good at doing my bills or whatever. You should be in charge of accounting. Like, Nobody wants to do accounting. That guy loves accounting. Let him do it. Like <laughs> the, it, it's a very simple idea that we all sort of arrive at when we are organized. Uh, that shouldn't if, if you hear somebody sort of uh, saying that this is somehow anti-democratic, uh, I would just suggest not listening to them.
4: Well, I think the reason part of the reason this sort of uh, perception has arisen, I think, since Lenin um, passed on is has to do with there. There have been uh, quote unquote democratic centralist groups on the left that haven't really uh, done. You know, as as Brett was saying, they did not actually apply uh, what he suggested um, correctly, and and they have been sort of um, cultish to use. You know, the certain Trotskyist groups, for instance, that that have oh, yeah. descended into into cults and have been like m- minor you know tyrannies of of you know ten people. Um, <laughs> but the answer to that is not to. Become as, as what a lot of the modern left has, and I think this is a problem too. Totally horizontalist, where you you don't have any uh, decision making capability and and no like coherent program. I I, I think right. there's got to be like a a medium between the
2: two. And I think one of the greatest successes of of anti-communism and ideology was convincing so many people, even on the left, that any form of organization or leadership is inherently authoritarian, right? right. And then you look at the enemies that we're facing, imperialism, fascism, capitalism itself, this is a highly organized, you know, disciplined, militant, funded, willing to use violence organization. And then they go around the world and they say, yeah, but communists, when they do it, that's authoritarian, that's scary, and leftists actually buy into it. And so you have this, this suspicion on the left, particularly on the American left, where we're taught libertarianism and liberalism our entire lives, individualism, of any sort of, of – effective organization and leadership and it it hinders our movements so entirely. And it's like, if you look at your enemy and you want to take them on, what do they have? Well, they have organization. Like I said, they have the discipline, they have the funding. Well, don't we need to match that in order to meet them or can we defeat that by A skewing leadership, a skewing organization, insisting that the 17 year old who comes into our meeting has every bit as much to say as a Fred Hampton who's been organizing for 20 years, right? These are (laughs) things that kill the left. And the fact that the left buys into it is a success of anti communist ideology.
0: 17 year old oh, right. is like, We're gonna lower the
2: drinking age,
0: it's like the only <laughs> issue. <Chill>. Um, <laughs> I do think we should do that though, it's important to do yeah It
4: is funny, I, everybody has this like, when when you're 17, that's the most important issue in the world, and then yeah, don't we, need to,
3: we need to democratize girlfriends. We need to have that discourse for
1: five, <laughs> for five yeah. months. Um, <laughs> are ready for that conversation.
0: <laughs> Another aspect of this, uh, that I think is maybe more specific to Lennon's time is that um he was in a secret organization so how democratic is it going to be it might be you might elect leaders within a secret organization but it's only I mean you're uh, the goal is to be working on behalf of people that are outside of the organization right so if functionally yeah. it doesn't really make any sense to try to apply like this sort of liberal bourgeois democratic process to it what you have to do is really probably cultivate the actual organic, democracy that's going to come out of just like working together with people or whatever. And that's, you know, maybe a little controversial. Hey. Hey
3: but you know lots of people <laughs> I mean that's the thing it's like you can't like Robert's rules like everybody clap if you want Stalin to rob a bank like
0: <laughs> Just, he's
1: gonna do it
0: <laughs> everyone snap and use everyone, his pronouns yeah, don't clap Stalin hates that <laughs> that's
3: um, a really good argument for things being secret do not broadcast <laughs> shit do You want the inside
0: um, so the thing that he kind of rounds out on and, uh, you know, culminates all this with is the newspaper, which I even mean, we haven't even talked about, but his newspaper was called Iskra. That means the spark. Um, and he was beefing with a few <laughs> other newspapers in this, uh, you know, in this it was to attract smokers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so one thing that he sort of talks about is, uh, Really specific to the time, but it's kind of interesting, which is that he's arguing that there needs to be a national newspaper, not a bunch of little syndicalized individual local newspapers, because at the time the newspaper was the medium of transferring information. So it's really important that this thing be kind of standardized. And he goes into all how, like, you know, when you have a local newspaper, it only comes out twice a year and then no one reads it and all this shit, and you're gonna make Jacobin and all this fucking crap. And uh, yeah. he also argues that. This newspaper, as like an organizing tool, will give birth to this party he's talking about, not the other way around, which is something that the economists sort of argue is that like, no, you just start a party and then the party makes a newspaper, right? This um, is the
3: thing that podcasters hate to talk about. Well,
0: yeah, it's really <laughs> yeah. boring. It. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because,
3: because I do think that like what Lenin is saying, and I think you're right, is that what Lenin is saying is that the information and the structure has to inform, we have to have everybody sort of on the same page so that as a party is formed, it is of like the ideals of what we're talking about. Um, and we have to assume that if, you know, if Lenin was talking about 2020, he would be talking about a different form. And whether it's YouTubes or podcasts or Medium posts, I'm not Substacks, I'm not really sure, yeah. but like whatever it is, we don't have it. Like oh, we yeah. don't have one of these. Um, and a lot of Leninists aren't even interested in making one. Like it's very rare that I hear anybody talking about like organizing media people. To have a line, like a political ideological line that we propose to everyone and we are all agreeing that this is what we're saying and this is what we're proposing. Nobody like we can't even organize ourselves as media people.
0: Do you remember last year when I think Nathan Robinson proposed a left like cable news network and everybody got (laughs) his ass on Twitter about it? Yeah. Yeah. I do remember mm-hmm. that. I mean, I understand there's pro- like that wouldn't work probably, but it's like, at least <laughs> trying. Yeah. There's, no one has an answer for this problem.
1: Got like. a lot of ideas under that wide hat. <laughs> <laughs> it is
4: okay, funny, I'm too, how player.
0: how some like Marxists
4: are almost like constitutional originalists with, with Lenin. They're like, no, it has to literally be a newspaper. That's at the
3: Trotskyist sit where it's, yeah. like, they're going to give you this international newspaper. Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is too sort of like a, it's an uncomfortable uh, topic for podcasters too, because there's something sort of like that can come off as immodest in or self aggrandizing and saying that like, we are responsible for educating, uh, the masses, you know, um, but in a way it, it's sort of true. It's just everybody together, uh, and it's, it can't be just. You know the the media you you create, right? That should also be grounded in in material work. Um, right. and I
3: think it's I think it's brain poisoning from John Stewart. Like, there's a certain right. American individualist understanding that like we're comedians, we aren't actually doing politics. Uh, obviously, this episode would be absurd to say that. Uh, but like, there's <laughs> this, this the thing. The funniest thing like, I've
0: well, ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: But I think there's this thing where it's like people are afraid to say we're doing politics and we should we're all of, of of a piece and we should all get at least people who can claim to be communists should be agreeing that we should all be working together and building each other up. And that seems sort of stupid and foolish for some reason. Uh, and I'm not sure what the mental kind of gymnastics people have to do to get to that point. But I do think that that's incredibly important, not just podcasters, but, you know, people who have substacks, people who have big Twitter, so like people who are reaching people, whatever right. it is, uh, you, you're not going to get famous by yourself. Yeah. That's not, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be striving to become the next John Stewart. We should be organizing ourselves yeah. to getting points across.
4: Right. And I think that's an, an important point. And some of that has to do with yeah, the self-effacement of like sort of the uh, sort of a hangover from like the late 90s, like anti brand. You know, you don't want to seem like a, a, a media opportunist. Um, but, you know, I always think of this quote that, uh, you know, that that sort of goes to that point, tries to deflate the power of, of satire or, or media when they'll say like, well, there are all these satirists in Weimar, Germany. And none of them stopped. And they were writing all these pieces against Hitler, but they didn't stop him from rising to power. It's like, yeah, that's true. But somebody came and took Hitler, beat his ass. Right. Somebody beat the Nazi (laughs) army. And there were a lot of propagandists in in Soviet Russia, in the US and the UK who were making that possible because you can't really change much of anything until you change the ideas in in people's heads.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's like almost like the circular logic of the tactics as planned thing. Like some things are part of it, but aren't the entirety of the revolution, you know?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think another way to to view this position is is Lenin just taking what he's applying to organizing and applying it to to like the propaganda outlets, right? We need that level of organization and that coordination in order to make these things work. And I think one of, you know, uh, speaking of podcasts, one of the things that actually makes podcasts not only superior to newspapers, but to these other forms of new media, I think, and this is certainly why I got into it, is because you can actually listen at work. Unlike a YouTube video where you have to watch or something you have to read. I got into podcasts by working shitty dishwashing jobs and delivering pizzas, but always having my earbuds and listening to stuff. And I became educated on a bunch of different things, including politics, mostly through that because I didn't have a much of time outside of my work life to sit down and read through anything, you know, or, or sit down for five hours and watch a YouTube uh, lecture or something like that. And the other thing I wanted to point out is how social media is the antithesis of this, right? The very incentive yeah. <laughs> algorithms inherent in social media. Um, work against any sort of coherence, any sort of coordinating. It it shatters epistemologies, creates little epistemological silos that we sit in. You can't break out. You can't reach people outside of those already existing echo chambers. And so I think the more time you spend on these, these platforms, the further away we get towards these sorts of things. And I think the more individualism springs up. It's like, I have my own Twitter page. I'm going to give my own opinions, my own eclectic collection of ideas that I personally prefer. And we're going to go to battle with your pref- you know, per- preferred ideas. And that just gets nowhere. It's spinning your tires in the mud. And part of the genius of these platforms is precisely that they are, they, they work as a secondary function as the co-option mechanisms, you know? Yeah. They're
3: atomization factories that yes. like masquerade as a, uh, Time, people connecting you. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean. Uh, you're, but you're not being connected. You're being pitted against mm-hmm. each other. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. Podcasts, I think, are very superior to reading. Uh, and I think one of the things that's, <laughs> that's um, was, you know, reading this book. Honestly, I would I would much rather send somebody like if there was a YouTube video or a podcast that like just explains. I mean, I know a couple. Mark's Madness, uh, Red Menace. Uh, do this thing which is like maybe it's actually better to listen to somebody explain to you what is to be done than actually sit down and read it and have to go through Wikipedia and figure out who the Mensheviks were and who like the fucking workers cause newspaper was all about like he doesn't really explain that in here you have to do that work so having somebody do the work of you know people are ashamed to say they were radicalized or they're educated through podcasts but like Mm -hmm. lots of fucking people are
0: but yeah. it's it, it's even in the theory that we're reading that there's like a fucking <laughs> argument about this. If people work 11 hours a day. Sometimes yeah. they can't, you know, sit and read theory all day. Reading theory is a pain in the ass. It really is. And yeah. also sometimes people are nerds about it. And they're like, I, I read it and it gave me a headache, which means I learned it harder. And it's like, no, you just fucking <laughs> used a piece of uh, media that is more difficult to take in. you know.
3: And also like theory, as we're talking about here, like this is theory, which is literally literally a polemic it's really just somebody like arguing on twitter or on a like a. it's 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 the podcast of that time yeah and it's it's literally just it's not because it's funny when people talk about theory i think of like throughout my childhood or like teenage adolescence or whatever i read a lot of philosophy sure, yeah. and that's very like you know it's theory in the sense of like this is what is real and we're talking about like logic gates and talking about like can we prove this and stuff this is not that this is like is this stupid or is it not based on our morality it's just arguments Uh, and everyone has the capacity to read arguments or hear arguments
1: for the last month we've been talking about how uber won an election they uh, essentially had no business winning crushed it out of the park by Mm. uh, essentially putting their propaganda in their app and making you interact with it. Capitalists are using all the... technology to have very fancy newspapers we just need to gamify communist agitation Yeah. (laughs) you light a a, a police precinct on fire that gets you four points i don't know what kind of rewards that unlocks maybe that's something we can discuss yeah if
3: you get a thousand points you become a professional revolutionary
1: (laughs) (laughs) i want it so bad
3: but seriously i think that's This is a really important, I think the newspaper part of this book is very important. I mean, understanding that we need a vanguard party and understanding what a vanguard party is and why we need it uh, is really important. And I think what a lot of people take away from this, but like we, like I said before, we've lived in a hundred years of propaganda, like Edward Bernays, the Nazis, America, like we should have understood how important that stuff is now. And like there are spots of people trying to like you know, I guess the left podcast scene has been around for about four or five years now. So like it's still nascent or whatever, you know, means TV is trying something like lots of different people are trying things. Uh, But I think that we should be taking that just as seriously as the concept of a Vanguard party and why they're deeply interrelated.
0: Uh yeah so i don't want to keep everyone too long I mean, we have to get out of here and also uh my head hurts because this is the smartest episode we've ever done on this show uh we need to get back to talking about fucking anime and shit um so, so i think do a
1: santa episode um,
0: yeah yeah uh, the next one and the media question is huge and i think it's kind of the million dollar question and i think it's also something that yeah you can't really just look backwards and then when we're talking about technology there's not you're not gonna look at something 100 years ago and find a fucking perfect copy it. Exactly. solution right. to this it's something that we can talk about like a lot and uh yeah there isn't one big thing i don't know um i guess brett do you have any notes on that before we kind of close this out or you want to just kind of go
2: yeah no I'm, I'm ready to close out i, I think we touched on all, all the main points of this text absolutely and if and i and as uh like Bryn alluded to you know we do have an episode on red menace uh, it's called what is to be done and we literally just walk you through the text and then reflect on it so if you like this discussion and want to dive even deeper you can go check that out as well
0: absolutely i listened to it it's great um it was so
2: helpful <laughs> thank
0: you yeah yeah listen to red menace to do exactly what brett was talking about i mean i did the same fucking thing i listened to so much shit on headphones while i was working it changed my life yeah. it's crazy you suddenly you don't have time scarcity with learning shit i yeah. will go off on a different episode uh let's do I, it. yes
4: I a lot of stuff i learned from rev Left radio while um uh, as a courier for try caviar so awesome. kudos to That's you awesome. red
0: thank you yeah for sure um yeah and i think uh, yeah we're all big fans so thank you for joining us um brett go ahead and plug where my listeners can uh listen to all your stuff
2: yeah if you want to find red menace or rev left just go to revolutionaryleftradio.com and we have a new project a couple episodes out called guerrilla history where we do for history what we do for political theory on red menace which is basically just more advanced deep dives so that's where you can find me cool and Bryn neboer
3: uh, you can find my podcasts wherever you find podcasts, or whatever. Find this podcast. One is called Bp Bledis. One is called Generation Loss with uh, Jeremy Hammond from Balling Out Super. Uh, that's about movies. We both have patreons. Uh, I also stream sometimes on Twitch, uh, twitchtv care, which are generally more deep dives about parapolitics and interviews with people like Matt Christman and Michael S. Judge about like the functioning imperial state. Um, It's not video games. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, other than that, I think that's
0: all I do. Yeah. Anybody else?
4: At Anders Lee here on Twitter, Dursley1Instagram. Check out Redacted Tonight, my other job on uh, YouTube and Portable.TV. And I would also like to plug um, the new Vanguard, John Ossoff, who's running for (laughs) Senate in Georgia. Everyone (laughs) should... uh, No, in all seriousness, there is a project... (laughs) That is, uh, I think, really cool. Has a lot of potential. Um, that is a workers cooperative for uh, drivers in New York City who are trying to, you know, fight back against Uber and, and Lyft, lifts of the world. Uh, and it, it, I'll, I'll, we'll link to the to the uh, place where you can donate. But it's uh, IOBY.org. It's NYC Drivers Launch Platform Cooperative. We'll link to it. Um, check it out. Uh, they're, they're trying to raise 20K, and they've already um, passed one goal, and they're, they're about to hit another one, so it's very cool. Awesome. Uh,
1: um, as for me, if this discussion on Lennon's work has you at all interested in centralized power and its applications, you may be uh, interested in learning more about Goku, the strongest <laughs> Saiyan ever to live. Sure. And you can hear more about him on my comedy podcast, Ballin' Out Super. And listen to my radio drama, Theater of Delights, which Bryn does the music for season two, dropping soon.
0: All right. My other show is called Why You Mad. Uh, It's me and my art historian, anthropologist friend, Luis Diaz. We talk about uh, art history, philosophy, pop culture, books, all sorts of shit. Oh, and stand up. That is the main through line. Um, We have new merch. If you're a listener to our show, a regular one, uh, it'll be out soon. We made a new logo. You'll see it. Um, There's rats. There's there's rats on on it. Oh uh yeah, sign up for our Patreon for bonus episodes and I think that's that's it. Um I will I'm banned from Twitter. I'll tweet out the episode in three days when <laughs> it comes out. But you'll probably hear this from someone else. Okay, that's it. Thank you guys very much for joining us. Uh we end our show by saying it's finished. It's finished. All it's right.
3: finished. It's finished. <laughs> it's finished.
0: Hey, that was fun. I got them to do it. All right. <laughs>